Take your Bibles, if you would, Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1. We started in the book of Hebrews last Sunday and want to continue our walk through this letter uh, slash sermon uh, here this morning. And we're looking at all of chapter 1 together this morning, Lord willing. You will also note in your bulletins that the preaching schedule is there. And so you'll be able to pre-read the passages before they are preached. On the back from the Bible Project is a sort of um, illustrated look at the book of Hebrews. Uh, That is quite small, we recognize. (laughs) And so if you want a larger copy of that, we can certainly provide that for you or just check out the Bible Project online. And uh, they have videos and those PDFs available. Hebrews chapter 1. Let us read it in its entirety, follow along, if you would, as I read it this morning. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of God. As we noted last Sunday in introducing this letter slash sermon, the recipients of this are Jewish Christians, probably in Rome, based on chapter 13, and we'll get there in due time. They have been expelled from their city in AD 49 by Proclodius, recently allowed back in and on the horizon is more persecution under Nero. Persecution that is somewhat unimaginable, were it not real. And in this in-between time, in the mid-80s, the author writes to this group of people to encourage them, to exhort them, to challenge them not to leave off the worship of Christ. Christ is superior, as we saw last Sunday. He is also worthy 
And so this morning we want to look at that reality that Christ is worthy. He is worthy of all of our worship. He is worthy of all that we are, all that we have, all that we bring to the table, everything that we possess. He is worthy of it all. But as I mentioned last Sunday, I think there are two reasons why this book slash sermon is so vitally important to us at this moment in time as we start 2023. The first is that certainly persecution already is here and is coming, and we are not prepared for it. We are soft, and we love our comfort. We are not ready for a society and a culture that does not hold us in high esteem or even treat us with indifference, but actually treats us with hatred and contempt, and that is here and is increasing. And so as we move through this letter slash sermon towards the tail end, that reality is going to become more and more prominent where the author is going to encourage this group of individuals in a similar situation to ours, do not leave off following Jesus Christ. He's worth everything even dying for. But I think another reason that we need this book at this particular time is because of the reality that we have begin to worship comfort, we like things the way that they are, we want them to stay that way, we quite enjoy our lives as they are and don't want them to be disrupted by much. We miss all that there is to worship Jesus Christ, and if we are not worshiping him when it's easier, how will we continue to worship him as it becomes harder? And so we miss worshiping Jesus Christ with all that we are and with all that we have. It's kind of like a social experiment that happened a number of years ago. It's a young man named Joshua Bell. He's a violin virtuoso. Individuals pay hundreds of dollars per ticket to come hear him play the violin. He played in Washington, D.C., and someone from one of the Washington newspapers suggested to him a social experiment with Joshua Bell be willing to go incognito into the subway system in D.C. and play his violin. And so he donned a ball cap and some street clothes, flipped open his violin case, and began to play. And for 45 minutes, he played in one of the areas of the subway system in Washington, D.C. This is Joshua Bell again, whom people pay hundreds of dollars per ticket to see, playing on a violin that was crafted in 1713 and was once owned by a famous Austrian composer. It's a Stradivarius worth millions of dollars. As he plays in the subway, roughly 1,100 people go past him, Only seven people stop. A little under 30 people toss some money in. At the end of 45 minutes, Joshua Bell, violin virtuoso, playing on a million, millions of dollars violin, receives less than $33. What do we miss? We don't understand how worthy Christ is. What do we miss out on when we do not recognize and bow to the reality that Christ is who he says he is? I think of the poor disciples by times. 
Jesus, out of love for us, enrobes himself in human flesh, and there must have been times where the disciples forgot who he really was. You see Jesus, he looks like them, he grew up in their area, some of them certainly, he, he's known to them, they travel together, they hear him speak. How many times did they hear him preach? How many times did they hear him say a parable, maybe the same one? I don't know how it feels to listen to me on a consistent basis, but you guys can tell me later. Were there times when they forgot who he was? But there was one glorious time when they were reminded, when three of them were privileged to see him peel back a piece and show them a little glimpse of his glory. And how sad it is that we can come here Sunday in, Sunday out, read his word, pray, sing to him as we have just done, and yet miss all that it means to worship him who is worthy. And so this morning we want to look at our text. It is an amazing text, as all texts are, but certainly the poetry and the way that this is put together. In the first three verses of our text, there are seven realities that are spoken of of Christ, seven reasons why he is worthy of all of our worship, not just a half-hearted ascent to him once a week, why he is supreme over all things. There are three real, seven realities that are spoken of under three categories, Christ as king, prophet, and priest. The three um, offices of the Old Testament now all finally fulfilled in one person. And what a beautiful text this is. And then from verse 4 through the rest of our passage, 4 through 14, the author is going to reveal to us that Jesus is superior to the angels. And for those of us sitting here this morning, we might say, yeah, got that, already there. But before we jump too quickly, understand the context. First of all, Jews at this time, Second Temple Judaism, revered angels. It was believed that angels delivered the law of Moses to Moses, and angels were instrumental throughout Israel's history, and angels were head, held in high esteem, perhaps in definitely in a higher esteem than they should have been. And so the author of Hebrews goes immediately to the thing that they revere the most to show them Jesus is even better than that. And we will see how that relates to us momentarily. So let us look at the first point then, this morning, Jesus is the worthy king. One of the categories that we find Jesus placed into is one of the offices of the Old Testament, that of the king. And there are three realities spoken of him of the seven. We noted two of these last time we were together, and so we will uh, deal with these, but briefly. He is the heir of all things, in verse 2. God appointed him the heir of all things. As the son of the king, the prince, we might say, although he is co-eternal and co-equal with the father, he is the heir of all things. All things are his. We note that in his temptation in Matthew 4, Satan tries to get him to bow down, and if he does, he will give him all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, knowing that all the kingdoms of the world are already his, he then says in Matthew 28, all power and authority is given to me. And then we note in the book of Revelation, Jesus is the only one able to open the seven-sealed scroll, which is God's plan for the rest of time. Jesus Christ is the inheritor of all things. 
Because of his death, burial, and resurrection, he has inherited all that the Father has for him. He is a worthy king. He is also the king because he's the creator of all things, through whom also he created the world. John 1, Colossians 1, and so many other passages. Jesus Christ is the active agent, the one through whom all things are created by the Spirit. And since all things are created by him and for him, he then is the king over them. Just based on those facts alone, Jesus is a worthy king. But notice in verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is also the sustainer of all things, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. By Jesus Christ, all things hold together. And so he spoke all things into existence and he holds all things in existence. Everything is as it should be because of who he is. Your heart is beating and your lungs are breathing because of Jesus Christ, the righteous. Everything is as it should be because of him. He is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords over all things. This is Jesus Christ. And we sometimes miss that. We become so close to him, perhaps we become familiar with him, but familiar with him in an inappropriate way and begin to downplay who he actually is. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Notice in the second place this morning that he is the true prophet. He speaks to us the final and full word from God. As we noted last Sunday, what love there is from God that he would speak to us. We cannot ascend to him. We cannot go up to where he is. And thankfully, out of great love for us, he came down to us. He spoke, as we saw last Sunday, in many different ways, consistently, repeatedly, variously, throughout history, and now he speaks to us by his Son. And notice in verse 3, two things. In the first place, he radiates God's glory. The word for radiate here could be, in the original Greek, one of two things. It could either be an act of radi radi radiance, or it could be a passive reflection. It's the difference between the sun and the moon. The moon has no heat or light in and of itself, but it reflects the light of the sun for us at night. But the sun actually radiates heat and light from itself. And while both could be possible, I believe what the author of Hebrews has in mind is this idea of an active radiance. If you want to know who God is and all that God is, get to know Jesus. Because we know from John's Gospel, John 1.18, no one has seen the Father, but Jesus Christ declares him to us. And in John 14, he says to Philip, who has just asked Jesus to show them the Father, Philip, have I been with you for such a long period of time? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. All that the Father is, Jesus is, and he radiates God's glory to us. Get to know him and you will know God because he is God and very God. But notice that he represents God exactly. He is the exact imprint of his nature. The illustration here is that of a coin that has the imprint on it of the individual that uh, it, it, the coin is supposed to return back to. In our case, our sovereign, uh, in Jesus' day, that of Rome. But whatever you have when you stamp 
that thing that is stamped, the stamp itself, is an exact replica, an exact representation of the stamp. And that is the word picture there of Jesus Christ. He is the full and final picture to us of who God is. We can't see God, God is spirit, John 4, 24, but yet we can see God through Jesus Christ. He represents God to us exactly. And so his word to us as the word, John 1, 1, is a full expression of who God is. All the prophets had was, were glimpses, pieces, a word from God here, a word from God there. They gave us the word from God that they received, but it was always incomplete. It was not a full completion of who God is until the word came, and in him we can see God. Notice, thanks be to God, in the third place, that Jesus is the final priest. He is the worthy king, the true prophet, and the final priest in the end of verse 3. There are two things that are mentioned there. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice that he makes full purification for sin. This is probably the most succinct description of what Jesus did on the cross in the New Testament. After making purification for sins, the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to expand on this, especially in chapter 10, where he lets us know, as we read even here this morning from Hebrews 9, what we just studied last year in Leviticus was always appropriate for atonement, but it was always incomplete. There was always atonement that needed to be made. More blood needed to be shed. But Jesus offers the full and final sacrifice for sins. There is no more sacrifice needed to be made. It's completely done in Jesus Christ. He makes full purification for sin. All of our sin, past, present, and future, is taken care of on the cross. Jesus did not die for a better version of you. Jesus Christ died knowing all that you would be since his death predated you by a number of thousands of years. And yet, knowing all the sins that you would commit, he paid for all of them on the cross. But notice it is a final purification for sin. What does he do? He sits down. Hebrews 10 is going to make much of this. Because in the tabernacle, you would notice that of the four pieces of furniture, three in the holy place and one in the holy of holies, none of them involve sitting. There's no chairs or couches in the tabernacle on the temple. The priest, while he was in the tabernacle temple, was always standing, always moving, never resting. Because there was always atonement to make, always work to do. And yet, what is Jesus' posture after he cries from the cross to Telestai, it is finished. He rises to life from the dead on the third day, and then raises back to the heavenlies just before Pentecost, 40 days after his his death, burial, and resurrection. And what does he do? He sits at the right hand of God on high. His work is done. And all of this is true of Jesus Christ, and all of it is expressed in three verses at the beginning of this glorious book. These seven realities speak to us this morning of the worthiness of Christ. It's not hyperbole when we sing as we do, or it ought not to be. We ought to mean what we sing. We ought to mean what we say. We ought to believe this, and it ought to resonate in our daily lives. 
And yet far too often, as those individuals in the subway in Washington, D.C., we're too busy. We have places to go, things to do, people to see. We're too busy to remember the worthiness of Christ and to stand or sit in awe of him. We're too busy to read his word. We're too busy to pray. We have too much to do to pay him the allegiance that he deserves. So the best he gets of us is one day a week if we're not otherwise inconvenienced, if it's not too much. But the writer of the book of Hebrews wants to remind his audience and therefore us Jesus is worthy of everything. He's worthy of it all. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our resources. He's worthy of our finances. He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of all that we have and all that we are. He ought to be easy on our lips. He ought to be the first person we talk about, especially with those that do not know him. He ought to be the one that we are getting to know more and more each day. He ought to be the one that we are exalting and worshiping. But I fear because for so long in our society, it has just been assumed that the majority, especially of islanders, are quote-unquote Christian that Jesus, as close as we say we are to him, has actually faded into the background and is not really a major part of our lives. We need this book of Hebrews, all of us. And so then in verses 4 through 14, the writer of the book of Hebrews quotes seven Old Testament passages in an attempt to prove to his audience that Jesus is superior to angels. And again, knowing his audience, the Jews, Jewish Christians, Jews are understanding that the number seven is the number of perfection. And so he uses seven realities to prove Christ's worthiness, and now seven Old Testament uh, quotations to prove that Jesus is superior to angels. They have elevated angels above the place that they should. And so this writer of Hebrews wants to remind them of who Jesus actually is. And so notice that his relationship to God is superior to the relationship the angels have with God. He has become as much superior to angels, verse 4, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father and he to be to me a son. Psalm 2.7 and 2 Samuel 7.14. The writer of the book of Hebrews, no doubt a Jew himself, knowing the Old Testament scriptures, quotes to his audience to show them that Jesus is the son of God, and even though angels are referred in Scripture to as sons of God, lowercase s, lowercase g, they do not have the same relationship to God as Jesus does. For as powerful and as alluring as angels may be, no one is superior. Uh, Jesus, sorry, is superior. No one is more superior than Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. And his relationship to God is superior to that of angels. Notice verse 6, the relationship of angels to him. And again, when he brings the firstborn in the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. It's difficult to be inferior when someone is worshiping you. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews, in a bit of a cryptic quote, Deuteronomy 32, 43, probably from the Septuagint, not from the Hebrew scriptures, 
proves that angels worship Jesus Christ. Angels worship the Son of God as well. And so if he is being worshipped by the angels, the angels cannot be superior to him. In the third place, his relationship to angels, verses 7 through 9, they are merely servants. Again, he is the Son and God and very God. He makes his angels winds, verse 7, and his ministers a flame of fire. Angels are no different than any of God's other created things. God uses wind and God uses fire, the natural things that he has created to do his purposes. So too are the angels at his beck and call. Angels are merely servants. They do not call the shots. They are not in charge. They do what God bids them to do as everything else that God has created does. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. God is in charge, not the angels. They merely do his bidding. And then lastly, notice his relationship to angels is superior, verses 10 through 14. He is God and they are not. They are created beings, and he has created them. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, verse 10, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Angels are created beings, and Jesus Christ is creator. And it's impossible for a created being to be superior to the one who created it. He says in verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, Psalm 110, probably the most quoted psalm in the New Testament and certainly here in the book of Hebrews. But notice verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels not only serve God, they also serve the children of God. So angels are even inferior to humans. Converted, regenerated humans are superior to angels. Because angels not only serve God, they serve God's servants. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews wants to dispel any notion in those to whom he is writing that angels are superior to Jesus Christ. No one is superior to Jesus Christ. He alone rules and reigns supreme. Now we might be tempted to sit back this morning and say, yeah, got it. Don't really worship angels, might have a few figurines in the house, but you know, they were kind of cute, and they were on sale at Hallmark, so what are you going to do? But I'm not really into worshiping angels, not really my thing, and so I got it, that's great, Jesus is more important than angels, got it with you, let's move on. But before we rush away too quickly, I would submit that there perhaps are things in our lives that we place as higher than Jesus. Maybe it's not angels. But maybe it's a relationship, either one we have or one we lack. And it has been elevated to an improper place of importance in our lives. Perhaps it's finances. We have taken the things that God has graciously given us and we have hoarded them and we look to them for our comfort. We look to control that, and thus we believe control at least an aspect of our lives. And we've elevated money to a higher level than Jesus Christ. And so we scramble around, and we work more hours than we should, and we push, 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 
for the almighty dollar. And if anybody looked at our lives, we would say, well, I know what they worship, and it doesn't look like Jesus Christ. Idols are not bad things that we elevate to become good things. Idols are good things that we elevate to become ultimate things, typically in our lives. So God gives us the good gifts of family and relationships. He gives us good gifts of money and resources. He gives us good gifts of time and even pleasure and entertainment, all of these things. And yet it becomes sinful when we elevate any of these things above Jesus Christ. You want to know what you worship? Have it taken away. What happens when your idols are removed? We get angry. We get frustrated. We get upset. I have a social sort of fantasy of walking up to individuals and just taking their phone away and running away. The things that we worship above Christ. There's a joke that goes something like this. A wealthy individual is driving their sports car at a high rate of speed and they crash. They're thrown from the vehicle. And as they come to their senses, they're standing over their car and they're saying, my car, my car. And they're just, you know, distraught, my car. Someone pulls up and jumps out of the vehicle and says, sir, I saw everything that happened. Are you okay? And then he looks down and says, sir, your arm, your arm's missing. Are you bleeding out? Do you need help? Can I call 911? And the individual looks down where his arm used to be and where his wrist used to be and says, my Rolex, my Rolex. It doesn't have to be grand to be worshipped. And the writer of the book of Hebrews knows what is coming for his audience. They are being tempted to leave off the worship of Jesus and worship other things. And he's pleading with them, as a good pastor does, to say, Jesus is so worthy. He's worthy of all of our time. He's worthy of all of our attention. He's worthy of all of our resources. He's worthy of everything. And if we don't believe that, how in the world are we going to convince anybody else that it's true? And so our response this morning is, do you worship God? Do I worship Jesus exclusively? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Do we treasure him as supreme of all things? And does it show? Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we are so thankful that you give us truth. And yet, far too often, we miss it. Far more worthy than a violin virtuoso and an expensive instrument. Your son is worthy. 
And yet far too often we pass him by in our daily lives, barely noticing him because we have other things that are more important. Father, may it be true of us that nothing is more important than you because that will be tested in the months and years to come. There will come a day and has already come a day for individuals, they're going to have to choose you over their job. They're going to have to choose you over friendships. They're going to have to choose you over family. And in a way that we have not yet been tested on that front, we will be tested. And so what will our response be? If our response, when it is easier, is not Christ above all, then will our response be Christ above all when it is much, much harder? God, forgive us for worshiping comfort and entertainment and ease above you. Forgive us for the mindless hours we have spent engaged in meaningless activities. We long to hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. And so, Father, may we be acting as though you are worthy each and every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.